How do you do, everyone? We're greeting you now from the Naval Air Base at Lakehurst, New Jersey, from which point we're going to bring you a description of the landing of the mammoth airship Hindenburg, which was due here in, in America this morning at dawn, completing the first transatlantic crossing of the 1937 season. Charlie Nielsen, one of our WLS engineers, is here at my side working the controls. We both flew down from Chicago yesterday afternoon aboard one of the giant new 21-passenger flagships of American Airlines. It took us only three hours, 55 minutes, to fly nonstop from Chicago to New York. When we landed at Newark, we found another flagship of American Airlines waiting to take us to Lakehurst with our equipment when we were ready to go. And incidentally, American Airlines is the only airline in the United States which makes connections with the Hindenburg. And as we came in for a landing on the runway of the field here at Lakehurst, we could easily see that a great event was about to take place. Last-minute preparations were being made to handle the landing of this great ship. It was just one year ago today, May 6th, that the Hindenburg made its first regular passenger flight to America, the flight that inaugurated the first air service across the Atlantic. So this occasion is doubly significant. It is the first anniversary of the inauguration of the service and marks the first flight of this year. The Hindenburg left Frankfurt, Germany, yes, uh, Tuesday evening, rather, at 7.30, their time. And for better than two and a half days, they've been speeding through the skies over miles and miles of water here to America. It was due to land at Lakehurst this morning at dawn, but we learned after our arrival at Newark that adverse wind conditions had been encountered over the area surrounding Newfoundland, which slowed the speed of the ship considerably. Now, when I say that it slowed the speed of the ship, by that I mean the speed of the travel over water or land. Now, the ship keeps in the air a constant speed, which is in the neighborhood of 80 miles an hour. If it is flying into a wind of, say, 30 miles an hour, as it has been all last night, the 30 miles an hour must be subtracted from its airspeed to give us the speed it travels over land or water, which would be 50 miles an hour when we make the subtraction. Now... If we had received a tailwind, one that would help it along, then we'd have added the 30 miles to the airspeed, and it would have helped the Hindenburg to travel over land at a total of 110 miles an hour. In that case, the ship would have come in ahead of time this morning, or long before dawn. The Hindenburg made its first appearance shortly after noon today over the New York metropolitan area. All during Wednesday night, Charlie Nielsen and I stayed in constant touch with all the radio communication systems which were in steady contact with the airship, getting last-minute bulletins and so forth. And are we glad to see from the American Airline passenger office in Newark our air cushions? We warmed them plenty all through the night, believe you me. On the Hindenburg are 39 passengers and a crew of 61. The Hindenburg circled over New York and is pointed for the base here at Lakehurst, where we are now broadcasting this description. Now, you may wonder why the ship didn't land the moment that it arrived at Lakehurst. As a word of explanation, these giant ships cannot be landed, or perhaps, should I say, should not be landed at midday. The reason being, there are so many shifting surface winds that it would bounce and toss the ship around too much. It must either be landed early in the quiet of the dawn or during the quiet period just around sunset. And it's just about sunset and almost the end of twilight right now. And raining, raining as hard as could be. Now, those are ideal times early in the morning or late in the evening. Winds and weather conditions have proven to be most satisfactory. In other words, nothing's left to chance or made subject to unnecessary risk. Safety comes first, as it always should. Now, the ship has been over the field several times. It's a beautiful field here. It's a sort of a sandy and grass combination with tarvia or hard surface 
runways in all directions so they can take off and land into the wind uh, from any angle. Now, while we're waiting for the ship to come back over the airport and to come into the uh, mooring mast, let me say a few words about the preparations which have been made here at Lakehurst. Doubtless all of you know that the great part of this naval air base has played in the lighter-than-air transportation here in the United States. The facilities are adequate for the handling of the largest airship built. Just a little piece from where I'm standing is the great mooring mast. To this mast is attached the nose of the airship. It is so constructed that as the winds change, the top of the mast can be turned, allowing the airship to swing with its nose always into the wind. Inasmuch as the Hindenburg is 811 feet long, the mast of necessity must be quite a distance from the hangar, allowing clearance of the ship if it swings around the mast. The landing crew of the air base here is expertly trained to handle these massive ships of the sky. Each man is assigned a particular post, and when the word is shouted that the ship is coming in, this man knows just exactly what is expected of him. That's a fine crew of men, if you've ever seen one. Now, we've been told that the airship is going to make an attempted landing in the rain, and if that is the case, we're going to have a mighty fine description of you because uh, of it for you, because... The men will have a difficulty in keeping footing in the sand, and especially since it's wet. Now, the structure is light and yet so strong in the Hindenburg. From the ground, as the ship passed us, we could see the passenger quarters. They're located just about a third of the distance back of the nose and just about a third of the distance from the keel. They're sort of square in shape and seem to extend the entire width of the ship. There are two decks, A and B, a being the main one, and the one where most of the passengers assemble during the passage. Lining the sides of the deck are the observation windows. Now, they're slanted so that uh, it will give anyone in the interior a fine view downward. And no doubt, as the ship went over a number of times, the people were looking down at the great mass of humanity assembled here in the field. A thousand people have come out to witness the landing of this great airship. Now, there's a long, wide counter inside the observation section of the ship. And you can look down to the ground below, leaning on a table. And below the table, you see a relief map of the various air routes of the world. So as you travel along in the Hindenburg, you can watch the progress shown up on this map. Deck A is the upper of the two decks. And to get to deck B, it's necessary for you to walk through a foyer and down a pair of stairs. There you find what is really a combined smoking room and lounge. Passengers are always thrilled when Captain Max Pruss or Captain Ernst Lehman will take you a trip through the, the, the giant airship. Through its many sections, up and down along the aluminum alloy girders, over the catwalks which lead from one area to another, and then you see a, a maze of bright metal girders everywhere. And after a walk through the ship, you're ready to rest, for you've covered a great amount of space, and you realize that you have traveled a great distance. Now they're coming in to make a landing of the Zeppelin. I'm going to step out here and uh, cover it from the outside. So as I move out, we'll just stand by a second. Well, here it comes, ladies and gentlemen. We're out now outside of the hangar, and what a great sight it is. A thrilling one. It's a marvelous sight. It's coming down out of the sky, pointed directly towards us and toward the mooring mass. The mighty diesel motors just roared, their propellers biting into the air and throwing it back into a gale-like whirlpool. No wonder this great floating palace can travel through the air at such a speed with these powerful motors behind it. The sun is striking the windows of the observation deck on the eastward side, 
and sparkling like glittering jewels on a background of black velvet. And every now and then, the propellers are caught in the rays of the sun, and their highly polished surfaces reflect circles of gold. Now, a field that we thought active when we first arrived has turned into a moving mass of cooperative action. The landing crews have rushed to the posts and spots, and orders are being passed along, and last-minute preparations are being completed for the moment we have waited for so long. The ship is riding majestically toward us like some great feather, riding as though it was mightily, mighty proud of the place it's playing in the world's aviation. The sh- ship is no doubt bustling with activities we can see. Orders are shouted to the crew. The passengers are probably lining the windows looking down at the field ahead of them, getting their glimpse of the mooring mass. And these giant flagships standing here, the American Airlines flagships, waiting to rise into all points in the United States when they get the ship moored. There are a number of important persons on board, and no doubt the new commander, Captain Max Trish, is thrilled, too, for this is his great moment, the first time he's commanded the Hindenburg. For on previous flights, he acted as the chief officer under Captain Lehman. It's practically standing still now. They've dropped ropes out of the nose of the ship, and uh, it's been taken a hold of down on the field by a number of men. It's starting to rain again. The rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It bursts into flame. bursts into flame, and it's falling. It's crashing. Watch it. Watch it. Watch it. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. Get this, Charlie. Get this, Charlie. It's flying, and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning pass, and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's... it's, it's there's places. 20... Oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the frame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass. All the humanity and all the passengers screaming around here. I don't... I can't even talk to people. whose friends are out there. It's... it's, it's oh, I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Honest, it's just like there are massive smoking wreckage. <laughs> and everybody can't hardly breathe and talk and screaming. Lady, I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly, I, I can hardly breathe. I, I'm going to step inside where I cannot see it. <laughs> Charlie, that's terrible. <laughs> I can't. I, listen, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost the voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm back again. I've, I've, I've sort of recovered from the terrific explosion and the terrific crash that occurred just as it was being pulled down to the mooring mast. That's still smoking and flaming and crackling and banging down there. And I don't know how many of the ground crew were under it when it fell. There's not a possible chance for anyone to be saved. The relatives of the people who are waiting here, ready to welcome their loved ones that came off this great ship, are, are broken up. They they're carrying them in to give them first aid and to restore them. Some of them have fainted. And the people are rush, rushing down to the uh, burning ship. The uh, fire trucks have all uh, gone down to see if they can extinguish any of the blaze whatsoever. But the terrible amount of uh, hydrogen gas in it just caused the, the tail surface broke into flame first. Then there was a terrific explosion, and that followed by the burning of the nose and the crashing nose into the ground, and everybody tearing back at breakneck speed to get out from underneath it because it was over the people at the time it burst into flames. Now, whether it fell on the people were witnessing this, we do not know. But as it exploded, they rushed back. And now 
It's bulking a terrific black smoke floating up into the sky. The flames are still leaping maybe 30, 40 feet from the ground, the entire 811 feet length of it. They're frantically calling for uh, ambulances and things. The wires are being hu uh, humming with uh, activity. And uh, I've, I've lost my, my breath several times during this exciting moment here. Will you pardon me just a moment? I'm not going to stop talking. I'm just going to swallow several times until I can keep on. I should imagine that the nose is not uh, more than 500 feet or maybe 700 feet from the mooring mast. They have dropped two ropes, and uh, whether or not uh, some spark or something set it on fire, we don't know, or whether something pulled loose on the inside of the ship causing a spark and causing it to explode in the tail surface. But everything crashed to the ground, and there's not a possible chance of anybody being saved. I wish I could stop in just a moment and uh, see if I can get my breath again. And Charlie, if you'll fade it out just a minute, I'll come back with more description, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm back again. I, I raced down to the burning ship, and just as I walked up to the ship, over climbed over the picket line, I met a man coming out. Uh, days, days, he couldn't find his way. I grabbed a hold of him. It's Philip Mangone, Philip Mangone, A-N-G-O-N-E, of New York. Philip Mangone, he's burned terribly in the hands, and he's burned terribly in the face, his eyebrows, and all his hair is burned off, but he's walking and talking plainly and distinctly, and he told me he jumped. He jumped with other passengers. Now, there's a Mr. Spay. It sounds like Spay. We're not sure of it. And uh, he also got out, and we noticed the uh, lines, the different lines, the, uh, the uh, airship lines and the American Airways, their ambulances are down there, and they're taking people out of the wreckage. It seems that a number of them jumped clear when the explosion occurred in the tail. Now, I'd, I've just been running up with Mr. Mangone and put him in a car. His wife and daughter met him, and I put them in the car with him and sent him to the field hospital with the other passengers who have been saved. Now, the mass of wreckage is still burning, and I want to repeat again something that I may not have, got cleared, have gotten cleared in the hysteria of the moment. The explosion occurred in the tail surfaces, in the fins, the part that was highest, after it had, it had nosed in to go down to the um, mooring mast. Now, whether something slipped in the back and caused the spark to set off the gas, we do not know. You see, they're using hydrogen in this, or they were using hydrogen in this plane, and it is extremely... Explosive. In fact, they wear ve velvet and felt shoes when working among the rafters around the, heel uh, the uh, hydrogen gas bag. Now, something may have slipped, causing a spark to set off some hydrogen which had leaked out into the structure. It's still burning. I don't know what is burning. Evidently, part of the cargo. Uh, it's still flaming, 10 or 15 feet high. They're still rushing people out of it. Now, it is my sincere hope that... that as many as possible and as many as I think got out. I think a majority of the passengers jumped when it came close to the ground, according to what Mr. Mangone told me. He says, thank God he jumped, and, and we say thank God for him also. And uh, it's still smoking. The wreckage is smoking. They've uh, wired all the available 
services, fire apparatus, and everything to come rushing in, and doctors and nurses to come down to take care of the people that are being taken out of the burning wreckage. Now, it lays 811 feet of just smoldering ruins now. I couldn't talk when I saw it. I hope, hope that, that it isn't as bad as I made a sound there at the very beginning. Now, while I get my breath, I'm going to check and see if there are any more saved out of it. All right, Charlie. Will you please uh, fade it out, and I'll come in and get that later. All right, ladies and gentlemen, while we're back with another important bulletin, um, Mr. O'Loughlin from the Consumers Company of Chicago was one of the passengers aboard the uh, airship when it burst into flames, and he managed to get free of the wreckage, and he's standing here right by my side. I can't ask him to go on there, but he wants me to tell the folks that he is all right. Mr. O'Loughlin of the Consumers Company of Chicago, and here is another man coming in. He's burned considerably, Mr. Otto Clemens. Mr. Otto Clemens is safe, although he's burned quite badly. Now, I'm... Clemens isn't burned at all? Thank you, thank you. He's, he's sitting right here. That's composed. And is that his mother with him? A friend of his? Oh, Mr. Clemens, how did you manage to get out alive? Yes, we, ha we, have, we have to allow to come. Yes. He's only speaking. What is that radio? Yeah. I'm from the passenger camera, also oben from Speiseraum zu meinem Koffer gegangen und im Moment kommt nun äh, eine Flamme und das Schiff fängt an zu schwanken, sinkt nach unten und ich springe dann an der Luke heraus, die unten neben der, äh, neben der Bar ist, unten am, am unteren Gang, wo jetzt die neuen Kabinen eingebaut sind. He jumped out of the cabin. Jumped out. Yeah. And, uh, did he, he didn't get hurt a bit in the same No, he did. isn't hurt a bit. And he's not hurt at all. Oh, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for you. And, uh, you tell him in, in your language that we're thankful that he got out alive. Uh, and, uh, now, Charlie, if you fade it out just a minute, so I see if I can get some more information. And now, friends, I want to tell you, I'm back here. I want to tell you that the wreckage is still flaming out there, but I have some very good news for you. Uh, I just came from the front of the building where they have set up an emergency station, and they claim that between 25 and 30, that is the estimate, between 25 and 30 are saved out of the wreckage. Now, I have here a total of 39 passengers and 61 crew. That would make an even 100, but they tell me there were about 106 on board, so that makes 35 out of... Uh, between 25 and 30 out of 106 so far uh, saved and, uh, and uh, accounted for that have, uh, they have been identified. Uh, it's still smoking. They can't get to the back part of the wreckage yet. It would be impossible because the uh, flames are, let's see, about uh, 10 or 15 feet still leaping in the air. The front part of the ship is intact for about 30 feet back. The nose of it is intact. Uh, it evidently had exploded and uh, burned before that part of the ship struck the ground, uh, even though it was the uh, first part of the ship that should have struck the ground. It didn't. The burning mass held the back of the wreckage into the air, and that, I think, is what saved the passengers for the simple reason that it gave them a time to jump. If the explosion had occurred in the front of the airship, they wouldn't have had time to jump because it would have blown the cabin right out of the bottom of the dirigible. But 
inasmuch as the flaming mass held the wreckage in the air, that made it possible for them to jump, and we are so thankful because from where we could see, we thought at first every one of them and the ground crew were gone. But I guess the ground crew had a chance to get out, and it was back, just a little bit back of the picket line so that none of the spectators uh, got underneath the wreckage. We're so thankful for that. And in checking, not a single spectator, only the persons engaged in the lowering of the giant ship and the people who were on board. Now, we have not uh, received any information as to whether the crew escaped, any of the crew escaped, because they were evidently up in the working part of the ship and wouldn't be down in the passenger compartment. Now, how they managed to jump, I have not been able to determine yet, unless they broke through the windows. Or there may be a possibility that the windows are open. They're open at the top so that they could climb out over and drop down, the man tells me right here. They jumped through the window. Oh, they didn't stop to open the window. Mr. Clemens here jumped right through the glass window. And it's fine that it was of a breakable nature that they could get out and therefore save their lives. Now, we can hear the sirens as they're tearing down here beyond us to fight the balance of the fire. Uh... The people are crowded down around there. I haven't a very good vision of it. Yes, I do now, right through an open window here. And the people are divided, and I can still see the mass of wreckage burning. I'm standing in the airplane hangar, the airplane division of the Lakehurst Field. It has stopped raining altogether, and uh, it's not hampering, or rather hindering the uh, rescue work. If it was muddy and slippery, it would hinder the uh, taking out of of survivors. Now, I'm going to stop for a breath of air and uh, see if I can check up and find out if there are any more or any members of the crew have been saved. All right, Charlie, just a minute. 